0: Yale Podcast Network. This is the Yale Environmental Dialogue, a podcast that is exploring solutions to a more sustainable future. Welcome to the Yale Environmental Dialogue Podcast. I am Paul Rink, a Fox International Fellow based in Mexico City and a co author of the new book, A Better Planet 40 Big Ideas for a Sustainable Future. Today we're going to be talking about climate change litigation. And I'm pleased today to be joined by Doug Kaiser, a professor of environmental law at Yale Law School, and actually my former professor for both tort law and environmental law. His teaching and research include, among many other areas, issues related to climate change. So thanks for being here today, Doug.
1: Paul, it's my pleasure. I'm delighted to have this chance to speak with you about such important issues.
0: So to introduce this edition of the podcast, My chapter centers around climate change litigation and particularly youth-based climate change litigation filed against governments using claims based on the Constitution, among other legal claims, and how the framing of that kind of legal claim is a better way to fundamentally address a scaling problem between a complaint and the remedy for the magnitude of the issue of climate change within the legal system.
1: Now, the chapter that you've written Uh, focuses on the Juliana litigation which many observers have called the most important lawsuit on the planet. I know you've been directly involved in that lawsuit. Could you explain a little bit for our listeners what the claim is, who the plaintiffs are and what they're trying to accomplish?
0: Yeah, absolutely. As I'm sure you can expect the case is very complicated but in brief the case was basically filed by 21 youth plaintiffs in Oregon and they contends that the United States government is not holding up its constitutional obligation to protect and, um, and foster their right to have a viable environment and atmosphere into the future. And more particularly, they're contending that the government has actively taken action to basically disrupt that right into the future.
1: When the case was first filed, Uh, there were some kind of cynical, grisly veterans of environmental law like myself who didn't think that it had much of a chance to survive in the courts. And yet here we are, several years later, um, still fighting this fight uh, with some hope, with a favorable opinion from a judge in Oregon.
0: Yeah. So when the case was originally filed in 2015, it was presenting a pretty novel claim and it did have a lot of pushback from a lot of legal theorists. But Judge Ann Aiken, in an early decision relating to a petition to dismiss the case outright before it even went to trial, basically basically stated that she saw no reason not to believe that having a fundamental right to an atmosphere capable of supporting life isn't a part of the constitutional rights of the people of the United States in the way that maybe it's not listed explicitly in the Constitution, but... How can you have a right to a bunch of the things listed in the Constitution if you aren't able to survive? Because your government is actively doing things to affect the environment in which you live.
1: And what I love about this legal framing of the case is that it invites judges to think about the. there's this kind of popular mantra that you sometimes hear in conservative political circles. The Constitution is not a suicide pact. And that often, often that phrase is used to kind of justify suspending an affirmative right that is named in the Constitution when there's a kind of national emergency, a terrorism uh, wartime, et cetera. This kind of turns that on its head and asks the judge to find a kind of unwritten right, a right to atmospheric stability, a right not to have your government knowingly undermine the very conditions for survival. And after all, if the Constitution doesn't include that right, then maybe we really have signed ourselves into a suicide pact. At least that's kind of my um, popular interpretive gloss (laughs) on Judge Aiken's opinion.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good way of looking at it. And in fact, although this case has been targeted for being very outside the mainstream and novel and uh, potentially not really viable, similar claims have been filed and succeeded. Including, for example, Obergefell, which was the case allowing for the right of gay people to get married. Um, it also kind of dwells on this idea that the Constitution may not have listed the right to get married in the in its text, but a lot of the other rights that it does allow are basically state that marriage is something that people have a right to to take part in, regardless of their sexual orientation.
1: Right. And Obergefell is a powerful precedent for the Juliana plaintiffs. It certainly shows a Supreme Court or a a bare majority of the Supreme Court willing to entertain the idea that substantive due process, um, that it it has some unwritten contour, some fundamental interests that can be found in in that language. I guess the big distinction I would draw between Obergefell and Juliana is that in Obergefell, you're talking about an individual liberty interest, the right to marry and partner with the person one chooses to spend one's life with. Whereas in, in Juliana, we're really talking about kind of collective rights, aren't we? Aren't we? We're talking about the rights of youth and future generations against the government. Do you think that well, it, causes distinctions for, and problematic distinctions for the plaintiffs?
0: I think in some ways, you're right, climate change is hard to separate from the collective impacts it has but the case says it's filed in terms of juliana and many other climate change cases of the sorts both in the united states and uh, internationally uh, really focus on the the rights of the plaintiffs themselves so if you actually read the pleadings of the juliana case they go into great detail involving each particular plaintiff not only just the harms that they're going to be feeling in the future but the harms that they're already experiencing based on the climate change impacts that they claim are caused by the government of the United States and the policies they put in place over decades, allowing for fossil fuel interests to be perpetuated.
1: Right, and I I don't wanna drag us too much down the rabbit hole of um, uh, justiciability, (laughs) but the fact that the youth plaintiffs, the 21 youth plaintiffs needed to swear out affidavits identifying their particular individual harms from climate change um, really just kind of highlights for me at least, something of the mismatch between adjudicating climate in courts versus dealing with it through the legislative and executive branches. Those plaintiffs had to show their particular individual injuries in order to satisfy the standing requirements that the U.S. Supreme Court have put on um, plaintiffs' access to federal courts in general. And the lawyers have done a brilliant job of showing how actually climate change is harming these 21 people here and now, Still, at the end of the day, particularly when you look at what's the larger significance of the litigation in terms of social movements and our political culture, you know, the hashtag for the case is Youth V Gov, right? Youth V yeah. Gov emphasizes that this is actually a massive generational inequity. It's, it's, it's really, it's discrimination against young people and future generations, um, but we weren't able to kind of fit discrimination uh, it, that that framing of it into a legal category because we don't recognize discrimination against people based on their um, their membership in a group like youth. am am I, am I reading that right that there might be sort of a, a difference between the the framing of the litigation as a social movement, public consciousness raising exercise, versus, the way that the lawyers have to frame it in order to stay within the narrow confines of standing and the constitutional categories that have been recognized.
0: Well, I think you're right to point out that climate change is something that's so expansive that it does struggle to fit within the judicial system. Uh, But I think with this case and with other cases uh, like it, the motivating factor Can actually be both judicial and public opinion so actually in my chapter for this book i talk about both aspects of the case and how as you mentioned they have a public facing campaign that really strives to increase social awareness about this issue about the case and about climate change more generally Uh, but in addition to that i think what i argue in the chapter is that because of the nature of these constitutional claims they are a, better able to address that magnitude difference that you discuss a lot, both with your tort-based work and what you just mentioned now, uh, than and most other cases that have been filed, particularly those related to, you know, for example, someone suing a fossil fuel company for climate change. Um, because you know, a fossil fuel company, it, you're right, it is difficult to really get to the magnitude of climate change and its impacts in the world when it's one particular contributor to the problem. But with these youth versus government claims, as you mentioned, you know, the U.S. government is accredited with releasing about 25% of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere since the, since the 1700s. And so that's a clear contributor to the problem in a way that hasn't really been seen very much in the court system for previous climate change litigation. And even with the youth who are having those impacts, it also is easier to grasp the magnitude of the climate change impact even with these individual plaintiffs who have to provide their own individual harms for the court system. Because in addition to what they've described in their affidavits, uh, you can also extrapolate that to the entirety of their life and talk about that with the current climate science that says all of the impacts that are happening today are only going to get worse and far worse as time progresses.
1: Yeah. And I, I do really want to emphasize the point you're making about the importance of identifying the federal US government as the defendant in the Juliana case. One way to look at all of the climate change litigation that's sprouting up both in the US and around the world is that people are looking to use those lawsuits as a way to frame narratives about who ultimately is responsible for this existential predicament that we've all found ourselves in. And the cases, the tort cases against the fossil fuel industry are trying to do a sort of tobacco move of saying this is a deceptive and malignant industry that has held our politics hostage and sort of corrupted and, and, and uh, hoodwinked our democracy for the last several decades. And I think there's actually quite a bit of evidence um, to support that narrative, though at the end of the day, I'm not sure it will ultimately hold up. You have to kind of imagine that the fossil fuel industry had been so manipulative and so controlling of democratic processes that the whole country was has been hoodwinked for 40 or 50 years. And I, I, I find it hard to believe a judge will swallow that theory. Um, on the other hand, when you look at the role of the United States and the role of the federal government in supporting affirmative subsidization and promotion of fossil fuels for the last 50 years, knowing what they have known at the highest level, going at least back to the Johnson administration, um, it's hard not to feel that the Juliana plaintiffs have got it right. They found the right actor here. And it's an actor that, in some sense, has authority over um, not only all of the U.S. emissions, but has played a kind of affirmatively harmful and obstructionist role in international climate change negotiations as well. So if you're trying to frame a narrative about moral and legal responsibility for this predicament, the U.S. federal government's probably a really good—they're on the short list, let's put it that way, for finding the (laughs) right person. Um, And I also—I like how the Juliana case, even though it was filed in, what did you say, 2015? Yeah. So it's filed in 2015, and it's got the youth v. gov framing, and look at everything that's happened since then. Look at, uh, you know, the Greta Thunberg decides to sit outside the Swedish parliament. And a year later, we have millions of young people, primarily young people, protesting in the streets simultaneously around the world. Now we have the emergence of OK Boomer. And I don't know if that qualifies as a social movement, but it sure captures a whole lot <laughs> in two words about this, this particular historical moment we're in. And in a sense, the Juliana case has framed it that way, right? Uh, before before Greta, before OK Boomer.
0: Yeah. So I actually have two two main follow up thoughts on that. The first, and I'll get to your latter point. Uh, I think both the Juliana case and the subsequent climate change litigation based around youth constitutional claims ha- has really that has happened around the world. I think has been a part of that movement. And you're right. Some it's been something that has done a lot both in the courts and outside the courts around the world. So there's been a lot of cases filed in Pakistan, in Colombia. Uh, there's a new case in Canada that have very, very similar youth versus government type claims. And in some of them have been more su- quickly successful. For example, the Colombia case was filed. And it, I think it was, it was less than a year before the Supreme court ruled that the youth did have this right to an environment capable of sustaining their lives. And That's all been fostered by this kind of movement that Juliana versus the United States sort of started. And it's really exciting to see. And I think that that's something that is hard to really attribute necessarily to any one case, but it's definitely been a part of that narrative. And it's something that I think may expand well beyond the courts in terms of its impact. But then going back to your point about tackling the government as this main actor in the climate change crisis within the court system, I think the government is the right actor to go after and for all the reasons that you mentioned. But in addition, I would say, uh, for example, even in terms of redressability, if you think about it in terms of both who caused the main issues, yes, there are fossil fuel companies who have done it, but it's also the government that allowed it to happen by implementing policies that fostered fossil fuel companies to do what they did. But in terms of actually fixing the problem more than any one particular fossil fuel company or even group of fossil fuel companies. the government is well much better positioned to do things like set specific policies that ban fossil fuel extraction and things like that that can have this enormous impact on the problem in a way that no other actor really has that potential. Let's, so
1: let, let's talk about redressability and, and what remedies might be available if the if the litigation ultimately succeeds. You, you mentioned the Columbia lawsuit. And we're very fortunate here that one of the actual plaintiffs from that lawsuit is a current uh, law student at Yale Law School. So we've gotten firsthand reports from one of the litigants. Ultimately, you know, you can get the pronouncement. You can get the soaring rhetoric in the judicial opinion recognizing the kind of right to a sustainable future that are owed from the government to the youth plaintiffs but then you have to enforce it and you have to somehow see that pronouncement turned into policy and regulation and enforcement. Um, And I know in your chapter, you mentioned the historical lesson of Brown v. Board uh, as a kind of precedent for the US courts taking a very, very strong and important um, morally based stand on government responsibility. Historians, though, tell us that the ultimate results of Brown v. Board remain somewhat mixed and and arguably were more segregated in our public education system today than we were at the time that opinion was released. So I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts? How how optimistic or pessimistic are you that, assuming that Judge Aiken's opinion gets ultimately upheld, that it will be enforceable against the federal government in the way that we need to see.
0: Well, I'm actually glad you brought that up because whenever I talk about climate change litigation, I do like to caveat it with this point that you're making because no matter what happens in the court system, you're right, enforcement is another battle that happens after a favorable court ruling occurs. And in fact, the Columbia case that, uh, that won with the youth versus government case it's uh, it's still struggling to go through its enforcement process, trying to get its feet under it. And so what I like to say is basically climate change litigation and these kinds of cases is part of a larger picture of a movement. And I think what we talked about before with Greta Thunberg and the youth climate protests and organizations like the Sunset Movement and divest from fossil fuels on college campuses across the United States and the world, those are the kinds of things that are, going to really be the fuel that changes public opinion, hopefully, and will allow for potentially a favorable ruling in a case like this to really get hit the ground running and take that shifting of public opinion and turn it into potential legislation and changing of the government in other ways that allows for action to take place. And I think they're kind of part and parcel often to have these sweeping changes in the law, combined with a huge movement that's happening on the ground socially, that's when real change starts to occur. And you can see that with things like the women's rights movement and the civil rights movement more broadly Brown v. Board of Education, the limitations there, as you discussed are real, but the civil rights movement more generally, I think has gained a lot of traction because of both of those things, the legal and the social aspects.
1: Yeah, it's funny. You, you you make a very timely point um, for us here locally in New Haven. I know you're, you're in Mexico now, but you'll appreciate the uh, students who um, intervened to demand divestment by Harvard and Yale from uh, investments in fossil fuels and caused about an hour long delay of the Harvard Yale football game. <laughs> they on Friday they were um, they were sentenced to community service, and I. Kind of thought that was ironic because they they had already served their community service by by raising awareness and getting press coverage on that issue all around the world. Um, the 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 lawyers that you've worked with um, as part of our Children's Trust, um, I, I kind of want to you know put their names and personalities into our conversation because they deserve enormous respect um, and credit for this litigation. So my understanding of the kind of genealogy of this lawsuit is that we can trace it back to an academic article by Gerald Torres, uh, who we're proud to announce will soon be joining the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies as of January 1st of this uh, coming year, um, in which he kind of made the argument that the public trust is a capacious enough concept to include the notion of an atmospheric trust and that governments could be held accountable for violating that trust. Um, And then that that idea was worked out in a book length treatment by Mary Wood of the um, University of Washington Law School, I believe.
0: University of Oregon. Oregon.
1: Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Um, And then that a student of Mary's named Julia Olson decided to take that idea and run with it to the courts. Uh, And I, I remember speaking with Julia early in the campaign and um, thinking, again, as the cynical law professor, that this really feels like a Hail Mary. And yet now today, we see that not only has the, not only has she earned uh, a favorable ruling in the Oregon District Court, um, but lawsuits on the same theory, or a similar theory have been filed in, I believe, every single jurisdiction and the District of Columbia uh, in the United States. And more importantly, perhaps, there's the case has become a movement, a social movement. And you see it evident in the in the in the website of the organization. Um, You see it in the way in which um, that initial youth VGov framing has fed into the kind of larger protest that you were describing a moment ago and has probably done a lot to raise awareness and consciousness among many young people about the way that their rights or their arguable rights are being infringed. Um, it's really quite a remarkable achievement. And it, I guess the the question I would pose for you is um, you know, how do we measure success for a case like Juliana? Is it the traditional narrow metric of do we get a favorable ruling that's ultimately upheld by the United States Supreme Court, or is there some other appropriate measure of success for a suit like that one?
0: Well, I think that's a good question. It's it's a difficult question as well, though, because I think that if, to a certain degree, success for Juliana versus United States would be a favorable lo- ruling. And there are actual plaintiffs in the case, obviously, and they have legitimate complaints that they want to air before the court. And even though this case was filed in 2015, we're in almost 2020 now, and the case actually hasn't reached trial. Everything that's happened at this point has been pre-motion, pre-motion discussion and pre-motion rulings. And so I think that's one aspect, but I think there's a whole other aspect. And what's tricky to say about measuring the success about that aspect is it's difficult to measure. So it's really hard to say how much Juliana versus the United States and the youth, the government movement, and all of these other cases that have come out of it have impacted other things, such as the national narrative around climate change and things like the youth school strike protests headed by Greta Thunberg that have just really escalated in the last year or so to things like the Sunrise Movement and these divestment of fossil fuel engagements. A lot of those things may or may not have been happening before Juliana or soon after, but they might have also been encouraged or motivated. And some of them may have been fully inspired by a lot of this work that was done by these early youth plaintiffs. And so something that I find to be maybe more compelling than how much if you can measurably determine happened from the Julian University of the United States, is to think more about how these things, now that they exist, can interact and grow even further into something that can really make a huge impact in the climate change movement. I remember being very inspired recently because, um, I, I don't remember at what event it was, uh, but Greta Thunberg came and spoke, and then she, I think it actually was when she did her Senate uh, testimony, when she testified in front of the Senate, I think soon after that, she met a lot of the Juliana versus United States plaintiffs and seeing them interacting together really came a little bit full circle for me because I think uh, the kinds of things that are getting a lot of press attention now, including Greta Thunberg and the school strike strike protests, are a part of that narrative that Juliana versus United States has helped to initiate. And the more that they can interact together, the better, and the more it can grow into something that will hopefully have this huge impact.
1: That's right. Um, We're giving so much credit um, to the youth as we should, Um, but there's also a couple of um, um, people on more of the gray end of the spectrum involved in the Juliana case. So two of the key expert witnesses um, are Gus Speth, uh, the former dean of the School of Forestry here at Yale, Um, and Jim Hansen, the preeminent climate change scientist. They've both um, sworn out extraordinary expert reports and affidavits that uh, are recommended reading, I think for every single citizen of the world. Um, And uh, Gus's in particular, which I assign in my climate change class, is (laughs) a remarkable narrative of, as I mentioned earlier, just how long the federal government has known about this problem and known about it with a kind of full unblinking awareness of the truly existential catastrophic proportions that are facing us. Um, And I I bring it up, it it kind of relates again to our theme of how does one assign responsibility for such a massive, massive problem. Uh, There's been a lot of effort through the hashtag Exxon New movement to really kind of single out the fossil fuel industry as the bad guys. They're the the ones, you know, with the smoke-filled room and the lies and the deceit. Um, But when you read Gus Speth's expert report, it's hard not to feel actually every president, irrespective of party for the last 60 years, has known. Um, Is that... Is that a part of the kind of the, the larger social movement public relations strategy of our children's trust to, to, to really pin it on the federal government as if they're bad guys, as, as if they're in smoke-filled rooms? Or is this more sort of a, going back to the other, the OK Boomer theme, is this just more of a mea culpa? Like, look, all of us, all of us who've been in power, who've been hogging resources since World War II, we've all failed you. Is that is that the right way to think about the the kind of public framing of the message?
0: I can only speak for myself. I can't speak for the movement more generally, but I definitely think that the focus of the youth for government, from where I sit, is more on the plaintiffs. You know, in terms of sitting in a smoke filled room, I don't necessarily think that it is pointing to a particular government official and saying you, or even a group of government government officials, and saying you are the culprit for all of this horrible thing that has happened, but the thing to focus on, I think, is that it is happening, and it's having these drastic impacts, and we have a very limited window in which that we, we can act to remedy the problem. And so uh, one thing that I think the free government's argument and movement really gets at is that this really in no way should be a partisan issue. And in fact, when they first filed the case in 2015, they were filing it against the Obama administration for not doing enough to combat the issue. And that continued on when President Trump was elected. But it really wasn't about getting at a particular administration. It's more about these impacts are happening, the government is dragging its feet and basically actively doing things to create the problem and keep it going. And we need to fix it.
1: And and I think you're right that um, there's been a bipartisan failure here, a consistent one. I will note that the Obama administration Department of Justice um, as a sort of parting, well, gift, I don't know if you want to call it a gift, but as, as a parting move, filed an answer to the Juliana complaint, which conceded a lot of the important uh, factual allegations that one suspects the Trump administration would have instead tried to drag out for years on end.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point, and uh, good good credit to the Obama administration, uh, but still here we are, unfortunately, because the government really has been dragging its feet on this case, probably because I would guess they don't want it to go to trial, because it would look really bad for them, but it's been four years, and we still haven't even gone to trial, so hopefully it will soon. Yeah,
1: and that, I mean, we again, we don't want to get too deep in the legalistic weeds, but the Trump administration's defense of the case has been extraordinary in terms of the procedural maneuverings that they've been willing to go to. The number of um, what are called extraordinary mandamus petitions that they've brought to the Supreme Court has just been jaw-dropping and unprecedented, and I would argue at least has reflected a kind of a fundamental disrespect of the judicial process and of the role of the trial court, of the role of Judge Aiken in being the first instance um, uh, judicial official to hear this case. Um, and one suspects that that extraordinary maneuvering is all just driven by the fact that they realize the plaintiffs are onto to something. If we did have a full trial on this, if we did have Gus Speth and Jim Hansen up there explaining in their testimony just how awfully and tragically and irreversibly, we've been failed by our government leaders, um, it would be the indictment uh, to, to end all indictments. Um, and uh, I can understand they don't wanna see that happen. The, the beautiful thing about courts is that at the end of the day, the defendants have to respond. They have to respond. Uh, unlike every other part of our government, where you can write letters to your senator, you can call your congresspeople, you can try to file some comments with a with a regulator. You don't you're not owed a response in any of those cases. But when those twenty one youth sued the federal government in, in Oregon, the government had to appear and had to give them the dignity of a response.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I'm glad you brought up the expert reports, including Gus Speth, because you're right, I mean, I can't speak for what the government is thinking or doing, but the evidence is incredibly compelling. And in fact, I, I'm glad that you used it in your class because I hope and desire that those kinds of court documents end up beca- getting wider circulation in the public because you know, I'm, I'm from a small town in Northern Michigan and I have a lot of family members and friends who if aren't quite climate change deniers are definitely skeptics. And I think one of the reasons for that is these kinds of, this kind of information about the government's unwillingness to act and many, many other things. There are actually many extra reports that go into many other details about the climate change crisis and how it's been facilitated by the government. People just aren't hearing that narrative. They're not seeing that in the news. They're not reading about it. And I, I hope if the, if the case is able to increase the access to those, that kind of information, those kinds of documents, then that would actually be a huge success in my book as well.
1: Well, Paul, thank you so much for taking time uh, to speak with me on these issues and for sharing uh, your insights, both from your experience and from the new chapter.
0: It actually really is kind of full circle for me because a lot of your work has been something that really fed into the work that I've done on this issue. And in fact, you're quoted in the chapter. So (laughs) I really appreciate you coming out today. The Yale Environmental Dialogue is produced by the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Music is by Ben Cosgrove.